Welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to having yourself surgically altered to look like a jungle cat. I have time. I, uh, now I confess that I, uh, I used that very same joke only 13 days ago, but um, you know at the time it went over so poorly that I thought surely a fresh audience would uh, change the dynamic and it would, uh, you know, uh, meet its mark. Um, you know, and it's always possible that I was wrong. Um, but you know, it really wouldn't kill you to laugh politely. After all, this is subsidized. Um, it's a very sophisticated joke, and it would only uh, you know, improve your stature in the eyes of other sophisticates like myself if you did laugh at that joke. All right, I guess um, it's not going to go over. All right, let, let's, just, let's start over here. Take two. Um, welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to watching the pre-debate commentary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, now we can be friends again. Fair enough. Excellent. Um, all right. I'm uh, Eric Metaxas, and I'm very, very happy to be here tonight. And it's a fabulous crowd. I'm always curious exactly how many people are here. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand? I'm just curious. That's uh, very few people. Okay. If you're, if, you're, if you're not here, would you raise your hand? Okay. And how many people at this late date are still undecided? Would you raise your hands? That's interesting. Very interesting. Did I, uh, did I mention that I got my hair cut off the internet? Did I mention that? No? Okay. Um, anyway, uh, well, the good news for most of you is that they've just announced a rain delay on the vice presidential debate. They've uh, they got the tarps down, and it's coming down. It just doesn't look like it's going to let up for a few hours. So relax, enjoy yourselves, uh, get home when you get home. Um, I should tell you a few words, I think, about Socrates and the city eventually. Those of you uh, who don't know... Socrates in the City takes its name from Socrates. Uh, and as most of you remember, Socrates rather famously said, um, if a woodchuck could chuck wood, well, he said it in Greek, so it's not fair. Uh, no, of course what he said, as we all know, since I never tire of saying it at these events, is Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and after saying that, history tells us uh, he leapt to his death from the craggy cliffs of Mount Olympus. Uh, now, of course, that's not true. Uh, he said it, and uh, people have repeated it, and I'll, I'll continue to repeat it. And it's sort of the foundation of this whole idea of Socrates in the city. We think that it's true the unexamined life is not worth living, so a number of us here in Manhattan thought that it wouldn't be the worst idea to have a monthly event, something like this, where leading speakers and thinkers would opine on the big questions of life and existence, and the bigger the better. Uh, the issues we've covered in the past concern the... <laughs> I've got to get my servos checked. Um, you know, by the way, our, our cell phone policy is don't, don't bother to turn them off. If you need to talk, just talk. Have, enjoy it. <laughs> I, um, it's like anything else. You know, you can't... You can't suppress it or repress it. It'll just pop out in a different form. So just go ahead and, and uh, don't, feel, don't feel guilty or stupid or insensitive or any of those things that you should feel. Um, the, the issues we have covered in the past concern the existence uh, and nature of God, the problems of evil and suffering, the relationship between faith and science, and the question of human nature 
and the purpose of life? Those are the big questions uh, from which we do not shrink here at Socrates in the City. Uh, Tonight we will touch on the issues of character, moral choice, pride, and on fall and redemption. Actually, our speaker, of course, uh, who is Jonathan Aiken. I'll say a few words about him in a moment. We'll talk about those. I trust you already know he'll be speaking uh, about uh, the subject of ruin, rehabilitation, and redemption, um, reflecting on the lives of uh, Nixon and Chuck Colson. Of course, Mr. Aiken is... That got a laugh. Fascinating. Uh, He is the uh, biographer of Richard Nixon, uh, best-selling book, which won an award, uh, which reminds me we have several special guests with us tonight. I'll embarrass them briefly. Um, We have with us the grandson of President Nixon, Chris Cox, is with us here. Just wave. There you go. Uh, And we're delighted for that. We also have a two-time Socrates in the City speaker, Mr. David Aikman is here. David Aikman. Thank you, David. Um, Aikman. Aiken. Aiken. Aikman. Uma, Oprah. Oprah, Uma. Um, That does for my career what it did for uh, David Letterman. You're all going to be very lucky. All right. Uh, and also in this august audience, we have with us the very man who moderated the debate with John Kerry and John O'Neill on, on the Dick Cavett show three decades ago. And, of course, the man who moderated that debate is my friend, Mr. Dick Cavett. You have to wave, Dick. <laughs> uh, I should add that, unfortunately, um, Joey Bishop could not be with us tonight. Um, He's going to try and be here for the John Polkinghorne event. Big physics buff, Joey Bishop. Um, thank you. Um, you know, I, it chills me to think that the last time I spoke in public with Dick Cavett nearby was 20 years ago at my Yale graduation. And I remember that at that time, the jungle cat joke went over extremely well. <laughs> which makes me think that audiences have just become that much less sophisticated in the, in the, in the two decades since I graduated. And it is depressing. So thanks for being part of that. Um, but really, it's been a lean and crazy 20 years uh, since that day, and I'm just hoping the next 20 are just a little less lean and crazy. Just, uh, um, I want to, it would be terrible if I did not thank our pianist, Miss Sue Song. Where are you, Sue? Where is she? She's, she's run away. There she is. Thank you. Um, really, uh, Sue's been incredible. I, I keep telling her that she's going to eventually get a break from our relentless Socrates schedule if we can just find a substitute. I keep trying to find musical acts to pinch hit for her. It always uh, fails somehow. This time we try to get uh, Andre 3000 of Outkast. Um, oh, so there are young people in the audience. That's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, yeah, he was too expensive. Then we try to get Danny uh, Bonaducci, and uh, turns out he, he doesn't sing. So... Um, Two quick uh, announcements before I talk at last about our speaker, Jonathan Aiken. Number one, for the first time in a long time, audio CDs of past events are available for purchase out there. Uh, They are $5 each. Now, we have deliberately priced them low so that you'll buy them. There's five of them there now, five different ones, many copies of each. Please avail yourselves of that. Um, secondly, a word on our format. Mr. Aiken will speak for about 35 or 40 minutes, as usual, and then we will have ample time for question and answers, and we will definitely be done by 8.30. Okay, finally, 
to the subject of our esteemed speaker, Mr. Jonathan Aitken. I met Jonathan Aitken on a very happy occasion two years ago. It was a breakfast at, of all places, the Rainbow Room. Uh, I learned that morning at the Rainbow Room that Jonathan Aitken, whom I just met, was in the process of writing a biography of Chuck Colson. Um, that book, two years later, is now finished, and it's due out this spring by Random House, and I look very much forward to reading it. And as I say, we'll be hearing about Chuck Colson's uh, life tonight. Uh, and as I have said, Jonathan Aitken has written a best-selling biography of my former boss's boss, President Richard Nixon. And I guess maybe now he's going to write a book about my former boss's boss's boss, which I think would be President Eisenhower. Isn't that the case? Um, in any case, as advertised, uh, Mr. Aitken will talk about thank you. We'll talk about uh, their lives and make some reflections. And he will also touch upon his own life, which in its sinuous uh, path has some similarities to theirs. For those of you um, unfamiliar with exactly who Jonathan Aitken is, let me say a few words about it. First of all, I should say that in England, where he lives, Jonathan Aitken is a household word. That's in part because in the mid-1990s, he was widely thought to be the heir apparent to succeed John Major as prime minister. You see, they don't have presidents over there, they have prime ministers. Let me break this down for you. Um, Wow, I'm sorry. Uh, Then... That did not happen. Instead, a very great scandal broke over the landscape. And according to um, Jonathan Aiken's own bio, quote, in recent times, no politician fell further than Jonathan Aiken. And in a synopsis of his own biography, it says, quote, Jonathan Aiken's fall from grace was the greatest personal catastrophe for a public figure since the trials of Oscar Wilde. How many people remember those trials? (laughs) Fatty Arbuckle? No. Um, Anyway, we'll be hearing a bit about all that in a few minutes. Um, But before the scandal, there was a rather charmed life. Jonathan Aitken is the nephew of the famous Lord Beaverbrook. He was educated at Oxford and began his career as a Fleet Street journalist in the 1960s, serving as a war correspondent in Vietnam, Biafra, and the Middle East. Biafra, I haven't heard that in a long time. In 1974, he became a conservative member of Parliament, spending 18 years on the back benches until being appointed as Minister of State for Defense in 1992. He joined the cabinet as chief secretary to the treasury in 1994, and his shock resignation in 1995 followed media allegations of sleaze in the final months of the Tory government. After a well-publicized court case, he pled guilty to perjury and was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. Um, He is today a regular contributor to TV, radio, and newspapers. As I mentioned, he's just finished his biography of Chuck Colson, and no doubt as a result of his friendship with Chuck, he has become involved with Prison Fellowship. He is a director of Prison Fellowship International and regularly visits prisons to talk to inmates. Here, here. I am very pleased to introduce as our Socrates in the City speaker, Mr. Jonathan Aiken. Well, thank you, Eric, and good evening to you all. Socrates was, of course, a man of very great wisdom, but I think that even he might have been put on the spot on the spot by the uh, title of my talk tonight, Ruin, Rehabilitation, and Redemption, as related to the lives of Richard Nixon and Chuck Colson. And to illustrate some of the complexity of these intertwined subjects, let me just begin with one anecdote, which comes from my biographer's journey with uh, President Nixon. It actually came at the end of the journey. I'd finished the book, and I thought after... Four years of work on it, I ought to go and thank Mr. Nixon for all the cooperation he'd given me. So I went to his home in Saddle River, New Jersey, and I thanked him. And 
Mr. Nixon behaved in what was for him a curiously sort of skittish and I dare say even naive manner because uh, instead of his usual rather sort of profound views on foreign policy, he suddenly started to question me on matters which I could not possibly answer about what would happen to the book. He said, how many copies do you think it will sell? And what sort of reviews do you think it will get? And so on. And after a bit, I cut through this uh, by saying, uh, using some self-deprecating British humor, to which Mr. Nixon was obviously not accustomed, <coughs> I said, well, Mr. President, I very much hope that this book will be a bestseller. I very much hope it will get good reviews. But just talking now between ourselves as author and subject, you and I will both know that this book is something of a failure. And Mr. Nixon looked at me as though I was a combination of sort of John Dean, G. Gordon Liddy, and Leon Jaworski rolled into one. And you saw his body language um, become really very strange. He crossed and uncrossed his lips, his, licks, uh, his legs, and he got uh, very nervous. And um, I could really see what was going through his mind, because I knew him so well by then. He thought, is this Englishman going to betray me in the end? And he said, what, what do you mean a failure? How could it be a failure? And I said, well, all I meant by that was that I've been studying your life for the last four years, and I have come to the conclusion that you simply are too darned complicated a character to be caught by the pen of any one mortal writer. At this point, a great wolfish grin spread over Mr. Nixon's face, and he said, ah, too darned complicated, eh? Now you're really getting somewhere. <laughs> Well, I think my themes tonight in some ways are too darn complicated, and yet, vicariously at least, they're not all that uncommon an experience. Um, Wall Street practitioners going back to 1929 have certainly seen people get ruined. And as we know all too painfully in this city, buildings can get ruined by terrorists. But I'm talking really tonight about individuals and souls. And one of my first rhetorical questions tonight is, can a human soul ever <clears throat> be ruined? Uh, let me go over my credentials for talking about this subject. As um, Eric indicated, um, I in the past have been someone who has certainly looked as though he's ruined. Uh, I was involved in a political scandal over 10 years ago. And as a result, I went through the experiences of defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy, and jail. And that's a pretty good royal flash of ruinous crises by anybody's standards, particularly if they uh, take place in the glare of Britain's notoriously merciless media. Uh, and that media has referred to me of every imaginable pejorative adjective over the years, um, finished, reviled, fallen, disgraced. But interestingly, they've never actually used the word um, uh, ruined. That's a curious omission. I'll leave it to you to decide whether it's uh, justified or not. But I'm not going to talk too much about myself tonight. Let's start with ruin and the word ruin particularly as applied to Richard Nixon. If you were going back to the year 1974, which was the year of his resignation, just about everyone would have said <clears throat> Nixon is ruined, but not Richard Nixon. Many of you will at least have visual memories of August the 9th, 1974, the day he resigned, and of uh, his very emotional farewell speech to the staff in the White House and then going onto the South Lawn and taking off in the helicopter into, as many thought, oblivion and exile. And some years later I asked him 
what was going through his mind as the helicopter lifted off and headed for that flight into oblivion and exile. And this is what he said, and I quote, As the helicopter moved on to Andrews, I find myself thinking not of the past but of the future. What could I do now? What? It may seem presumptuous that I thought it in that way, but I did. That's the way it was. And a little couplet kept coming into my head. It was the ballad of Sir Andrew Barton. I am hurt, but I am not slain. I will lay me down and bleed a while, then I will rise and fight again. Well, bleed a while, he certainly did, uh, medically, uh, as well as psychologically and politically. He nearly died twice on an operating table, and his political reputation was almost worse than death. He was the most vilified man in America and in the world. And at the height of that uh, vilification period, that was rather politer sound than that used to be made about Richard Nixon at that time, at the height of that vilification period, uh, I went to see uh, ex-President Nixon in his um, St. Helena-like uh, exile place at San Clemente. Uh, I was there for uh, slightly complicated reasons. Um, I had a small link with Mr. Nixon because I had been a speechwriter to Prime Minister Alec Douglas Hume of Britain and had met him in far-off days. And um, I happened to have three acquaintances who were um, in exile, effectively, with Mr. Nixon, San Clemente, Ron Ziegler, uh, Diane Sawyer, then a Nixon aide, now a CBS correspondent, and somebody called Frank Gannon. And as a result of this, I spent uh, these connections, I spent the best part of two hours in conversation. This is towards the end of 74, six months after the resignation. And after this long sort of talk, mainly about foreign policy, finished, and as I was leaving, Mr. Nixon said to me something like this, and I was the time, uh, I think, Britain's youngest member of parliament. And he said to me, well, before you leave, I just got some advice for you. You're young, you look like a comer, you're in politics, you'll have some reverses, but take it from me. And here are these rather memorable words. Take it from me. He said, failure is not falling down. Failure is falling down and not getting up again to continue life's race. Well, in some ways, this was Nixon talking to himself, but it's a pretty interesting credo of rehabilitation. It is the idea that a human soul, by its own will, by its own endeavor, can pick itself up from just about any disaster, get up, and continue life's race. Now, Richard Nixon's idea of rehabilitation was the original one of running for ex-president. And he gave extraordinary dedication to this task for the next 18 years of his life. I caught a rather interesting glimpse of how he ran for ex-president when, in 1978, he uh, made a visit to Britain. The origins of this uh, visit to Britain, which were his first visit to any country outside the United States except for one to China, where the conditions are somewhat better controlled uh, from a media point of view. Um, the, the origins of this uh, visit came in that visit to Mr. Nixon just after his resignation. And after he'd given me advice uh, about uh, how to cope with life's reverses, he then said to me, everyone who comes to see me these days has some advice for me. What advice do you have for me? Well, I had no advice for him, but um, uh, 30-year-old politicians are not stumped that easily. So I thought fast and furiously, and I said, well, um, Mr. President, I hope that the day will come when you uh, will speak out again in public, as interestingly as you've been speaking to me in private about foreign affairs. Um, and um, I can see that it may be difficult for you to uh, 
come to public platforms, given the state of public opinion about you in this country today, but maybe time will come and you'll make overseas visits. And if you ever think of making one to Britain, I'd very much like to organize a dinner for you or something like that. Those are my words of advice, because I think people, people all over the world will be come to be very interested in what you have to say. Well, slightly to my surprise, and then even more almost to my alarm, uh, Mr. Nixon quite quickly on took me up on this. And <clears throat> he, uh, he called me up one day and said he had an invitation from the Oxford Union, um, and uh, what did I think of this? And I did my utmost to put him off. I said, they'll be rude to you, they'll heckle you, I wouldn't come if I was you, but I could tell quite early on his mind was made up, and he wanted to have some other engagements while he was there and asked me if I could help arrange anything. And so in 1978, he did... Uh, turn up in, in, in Britain for this first, apart from China, overseas visit. And I won't forget his airport arrival in a hurry. It was not the kind of airport arrival he was used to. The British government of the day <clears throat> was a Labour government, and it had a very zealous and anti-Nixon foreign secretary who had talked, at least in private, of making Nixon a persona non grata. It was that bad. Uh, and certainly the British government regarded this visit of the former president like a visit of something the cats brought in. They did not want to know at all about him, and they sent absolutely nobody to meet him at the airport. Uh, he got the slenderest of VIP facilities. Uh, there was only a sort of man from British Airways to greet him, and um, there was me, and then there was the American ambassador, uh, who was Kingman Brewster. And Kingman Brewster was obviously not over-enamored at uh, having to meet the president either, um, I said to him just before he arrived, um, what um, is the American embassy doing during this visit? And King and Bruce said, the minimum. Uh, and <coughs> then he, um, when he met Mr. Nixon, he made a rather curious allusion, which I didn't get at the time, but you have to remember that King and Bruce had been on the Nixon White House enemies list. And with some relish, um, King and Bruce said, we've given you um, our oldest but soundest bulletproof limousine to protect you from your enemies. Ha, ha, ha. And this was the sort of tone of the, the meeting. And it's not surprising that this, after this airport arrival that Mr. Nixon was a little downbeat. And then we walked out to this uh, rather antique uh, bulletproof limousine in a sort of courtyard. And there was just off the courtyards, around the courtyard, there were about 100 construction workers in the traditional British manner having a lengthy lunch, sitting down, drinking their beer, and one of them recognized the 37th president and said, I don't think Mr. Nixon caught this, but I did, he said, bloody hell, it's tricky dicky. And <clears throat> at this point, the entire uh, hundred or so construction workers um, uh, took off their hard hats and cheered and said three cheers for the ex-pres, and you wouldn't do any worse than Mr. Callaghan, our present British Prime Minister. And... Uh, uh, Immediately, uh, the old politician got going, he waved back, he uh, went out and shook hands with them, he worked the crowd, and as he got back into the limousine to me, uh, who had had nothing whatever to do with any of this, um, Mr. Nixon said to me, Jonathan, you are a great advance man. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't the only crowd that uh, Mr. Nixon worked on that 1978 visit. The Oxford Union, where he spoke well and dominated the hecklers. Uh, he had an audience of members of parliament. He had large lunch parties and dinner parties. He had private meetings with Margaret Thatcher, Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Wilson, many other notables on the British political scene. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was uh, good therapy for 
uh, someone who was seeking rehabilitation. And just one political memory from then. Um, I remember he was addressing a little group called the, well, not so little group, uh, uh, called the Conservative Philosophical uh, Group. And insofar as those terms are not mutually exclusive, this was a group (laughs) of uh, sort of thinkers uh, and uh, intellectuals and uh, Nixon's kind of audience he was very, very good with. And I went to pick him up from Claridge's Hotel, and as I collected him, I said, by the way, I just heard on the radio that... um, an unknown Polish cardinal called Cardinal Wielotla uh, has been elected as the Pope. And Nixon, quick as a flash, said, Polish Pope, Polish Pope. That could be the spark which will light the fire, which will result in communism being brought down in Eastern Europe. And I was amazed by his remark, and I said so. And Nixon, a rather Nixonian touch, said, you might plan a question on that tonight, because uh, I'll do that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which I did. Uh, I think Paul Johnson, the great uh, uh, author, asked the question. And Nixon gave a brilliant answer about how within 10 or 15 years um, the walls of communism would fall, which, of course, they did. And it just was something about his uh, almost seer-like skill as a foreign policy uh, expert. Well, our foreign policy expertise was Richard Nixon's ticket to rehabilitation. And... He really worked at it. He traveled indefatigably around the world. He wrote uh, books, some of them rather remarkable books, like Seize the Moment and Real Peace and No More Vietnams. He wrote newspaper articles, the New York Times and others, and speeches upon speeches to interesting audiences all over the world. And this was his battle for rehabilitation. I have just one more Nixon anecdote uh, from this rehabilitation period, uh, which may uh, amuse you. He um, came to Britain in 19... Uh, 93. It was one of his last big speeches. It was an evening o- organized by the Atlantic Richfield Oil Company. I think they were after leases in the North Sea. And they laid on a spectacular dinner in the great ballroom of Claridge's for 800 or so of Britain's uh, great and good. And they had not only laid on one president, they actually got two presidents of the United States to come and address this gathering. Nixon was the main speaker, but President Reagan was doing the introduction of Nixon. And Nixon was introduced by Reagan with great grace and humor, um, uh, some of it a bit folksy, as was Reagan's won't. I think his opening joke was, ladies and gentlemen, as Henry VIII said to each of his six wives, I won't be keeping you long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he only kept us for about no more than five minutes and introduced Nixon beautifully. But it was quite noticeable that for these uh, five relatively simple minutes of introduction, Reagan required half a dozen or so large cue cards which were put up before him. Nixon, when he rose to speak, rose without a note, spoke for 55 minutes, absolutely brilliant tour d'horizon of all the geopolitical nuances around the globe, and sat down to thunderous applause. It was a great evening. Uh, the next morning, I, as the sort of biographer in residence, um, had breakfast with Mr. Nixon, who, as always, wanted to know the feedback the night before, and I had many very genuine compliments to pass on, including something which many, many people said, was what a big comparison there was between uh, Nixon speaking extempore without notes for 50-odd minutes and Reagan having to have these numerous cue cards for only five minutes. And Nixon liked this comparison very much, and he beckoned people like Henry Kissinger over to our breakfast table and said, Jonathan has some interesting insights into last night. <laughs> and I, 
repeated this several times uh, to various friends. And uh, then uh, we finished breakfast and we walked out together to the uh, main entrance to Claridge's and I shook hands with him, but just was saying goodbye when just at that moment down the great staircase of Claridge's came President Reagan, who was uh, surrounded by a posse of Secret Service men and he was on his way to the Oxford Union, which American presidents seemed to love going to. Um, and he just said hello and goodbye very gracefully. And then a second or two later, down the great staircase of Claridge's came uh, a squadron of Claridge's porters carrying great rectangular objects wrapped up in brown paper. They were almost certainly works of art. And Nixon looked up at the scene of the porters coming down the stairs and he said quick as a flash, gee, those must be Reagan's cue cards for Oxford. <laughs> well, a f only a few weeks afterwards, uh, President Nixon sadly died, and um, I was by this time a defense minister in Britain, and John Major sent me as the British government's representative to Nixon's funeral. And um, even allowing for Dr. Johnson's, Dr. Samuel Johnson's famous remarks that in funeral orations a man is not on oath, uh, nevertheless, even allowing for that, uh, there was no doubt whatever, as you listened to the funeral talks and you read the obituaries and felt the atmosphere of that um, remarkable uh, funeral, there was no doubt that if you'd been asked the question, has Nixon in the last 18 years rehabilitated himself, no objective person could give any answer other than yes. He uh, quite clearly had restored and rehabilitated to some considerable extent his, his reputation as an elder statesman and foreign policy expert. Well, if we could agree that Richard Nixon uh, had rehabilitated himself, I think my second rhetorical question was this. Had he also redeemed himself? And I'll come back later to try and answer this question to the whole issue of Richard Nixon and redemption. But let me enter a caveat here. Merely to ask that question in the way round that I just asked it, uh, did he redeem himself, is to start from a false premise. It's a misconception because no one can actually redeem themselves. Rehabilitation, yes, rehabilitation is to do with self-will, self-help, self-effort, but redemption is something completely different. It's to do with God's will and God's grace. There is, however an interesting connection or two between rehabilitation and redemption. And interestingly, it comes from the world of rehab clinics. Um, you find it in Alcoholics Anonymous courses and Narcotics Anonymous courses. Most of them have courses which are called the 10 steps or the 12 steps. And somewhere in most of those guides or steps, they all say something like, and you may need the help of a higher power. Whose power? Well, here we enter the mysterious spiritual dimension of redemption, and we move from secular territory to spiritual territory. Because rehabilitation is human business, redemption is divine business. And the first real appearance of redemption as divine concept comes from the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who had some very interesting things to say to individuals about redemption. Just hearken for a moment to these remarkable words from the prophet Isaiah, the opening of the 43rd chapter. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. If you pass through the floods, the waters will not sweep over you. If you walk through the fire, the flames will not burn you. 
So do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. There's an implication there of a deeply personal um, dimension of the relationship in the redemptive process. And uh, yet there it is in in that uh, ancient scripture. And for a no less personal but slightly more practical guide to uh, God's redemption, uh, take a look sometime at Psalm 130. It was written quite obviously by a psalmist uh, in the depths of ruin. It begins with the words, Out of the depths have I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, O Lord, be attentive to my cry for mercy. I have a rather personal story about this psalm. Uh, One of the worst days of my life was the day on which I was sent to prison for perjury, and I arrived in Belmarsh Prison in South London, which is known in the jargon of prisoners as a tough nick. And so indeed it proved that day you go through the rather grueling and humiliating rituals of the first day's imprisonment, strip searching, uh, de-lousing, fingerprinting, uh, mugshotting, getting all your possessions confiscated. And um, you uh, eventually um, you end up in a cell. And when I arrived in my cell, I was, uh, despite the fairly squalid conditions, I was grateful it had been a tough day, a long day. I thought, well, at least I'll be able to get my head down and get a good night's sleep. Uh, no such luck. The uh, prisoners of Belmarsh Prison, having all been tuned into the media, um, were well aware that I had arrived, and the, uh, my next-door uh, cell neighbors on my left and right um, uh, decided to tell everyone in the prison exactly where I'd arrived, and they did so by something I got used to at Belmarsh, which was a chant known as doing a quizzy. It meant chanting questions and answers quiz-style at such a high volume that they were from one cell block to another across the exercise yard. And I always remember how my blood froze that night when I suddenly realized that this chant or quizzy was all about me. Um, as we're in an uh, evening organized by Christians, I think I'd better spare you the fruity details of this quizzy. But <clears throat> the gist of it was, to borrow a phrase from the Nixon administration, it went something like this. That expletive deletive, Aitkin, has now arrived in cell 321B. Tomorrow, tomorrow morning, lads, let's expletive deletive to this or that expletive deletive part of his body so we can show him exactly what we expletive deletive can do to expletive deletive Tory cabinet ministers. That was the gist of it. Well, I make light of it now, but I assure you at the time, I was really scared. Nothing had prepared me for the venom and the viciousness and the implied violence of that chant. And um, I did the only thing I thought I could possibly be the slightest use, which I knelt down tried to say a prayer. I say tried to because my prayer failed completely. I was so frightened that I couldn't even get the words of the Lord's Prayer out. And then I remembered that earlier in the day, uh, sort of when I was still a free man, a uh, well-wisher had given me a little booklet, which was called Praying the Psalms. I'm not sure I really knew what that uh, title meant. But um, And this booklet had a frightfully exciting journey into Belmarsh Prison, almost as exciting as my own. It had been confiscated, logged in various prison officers' uh, books, it had then been sniffed over by sniffer dogs for some minute to find out whether it concealed drugs. And then, as the sniffer dogs seemed to have a disagreement, uh, great X-ray machines were called in to X-ray it in case it got anything illegal. And then, to continue the pattern of disagreements, two prison officers had a rather noisy discussion as to whether or not a book called Praying the Psalms was or was not a religious book. Eventually, uh, a senior officer came along and decided it was, so under Rule 73 one b subsection 3 of the prison rules, I was allowed to keep it and put it back in my pocket. And so at this moment of 
great fear, but trying to pray, I pulled out this little booklet called Praying the Psalms, and it was a calendar-type booklet, and I opened it on June the 8th, 1999, and it said, Read Psalm 130. And it's actually a rather wonderful prayer recommended to anybody who's in any of life's depths because it shows you in six or so short verses how to climb out of life's depths with God's help and, and the conclusion of the promises. Um, you will get God's unfailing love and full redemption, and it shows rather helpfully how to um, uh, climb, make that climb. It involves all sorts of processes like uh, reverencing or fearing God, forgiving and being forgiven, waiting and learning to be patient, and eventually you end up with love and redemption. And this psalm certainly spoke to me that night, and it spoke to me throughout this, my entire prison sentence, uh, which incidentally was not a totally negative experience at all. Um, and I got many, many good things out of my prison journey. And uh, one of them was to get involved with a, a prison prayer group, and I used to sometimes talk about this psalm to them, and just at the end of my prison sentence, one last prison anecdote, um, uh, the uh, prison chaplain said, well, we've heard you talk privately about this uh, particular psalm and its great message of redemption. Would you like to give a talk on your last Sunday evening in prison on Psalm 130? So I said, well, okay. Um, and notice boards went up all over the prison. Jonathan Aitken would give a talk on Psalm 130 in the prison chapel Sunday night, 6.30. Now, this advertising had the rather undesirable effect of enlarging the congregation uh, far beyond the usual Christian suspects. And I got distinctly worried that uh, evening as what P.G. Woodhouse would call distinctly tough eggs seemed to be arriving in the prison chapel in large numbers, and their ribald comments made it clear that I was in for a pretty rough ride. And then all the sort of tough eggs who'd been making noises suddenly were totally silenced. As there arrived in the front row um, of the prison chapel, uh, a gentleman who barreled in, a great burly man, and he was known as the Big Face. If you ever met him, you never called him um, Smith or whatever his name was. I was like, morning, Big Face. And this um, title uh, means, as it sort of rather suggests, he was the head honcho of the prison. He was the most dangerous and feared man in the whole jail. He'd actually been uh, an executioner for a gang called the Cray Gang, Cray Brothers, who are the equivalent of Al Capone's lot in Britain, and he was a man greatly to be feared. And his arrival not only silenced all the twittering uh, potential hecklers, but it really alarmed me as I saw him sit down. <laughs> and I began, even more nervously than I might otherwise have done, um, and I began by saying I was going to give a talk on Psalm 130. And then, to improve my street cred as an interpreter of Scripture, I said... Um, this uh, psalm is a famous psalm. It's not just my favorite psalm, but it is also the favorite psalm of Augustine and of Luther and of Calvin. And the big face nodded gravely at this information. And <laughs> so I continued and I gave my interpretation of the psalm, ending up with God's unfailing love and full redemption. And far from making any trouble, the big face was visibly moved. You could see one or two tears even trickling down his cheek. And as I finished, he came up to me and he said afterwards, he said, Jono, that, that, uh, that psalm was really beautiful. It spoke to me. It really got to me hard. It did. Could you do us a favor? I know you're going out on Thursday, but tomorrow night, would you mind coming around to me, Peter, my cell, and saying your piece again for a couple of my best mates? I think they'd really speak to them too. Well, I must have looked a little bit nervous at the prospect of, 
spending an evening with the Big Face and his <laughs> close associates. And Big Face, very intuitive man, obviously recognized this. So he tried to reassure me. He said, um, and to make yourselves feel at home, why don't you bring a couple of your best mates as well? I mean, how about bringing those geezers you said like the Psalms so much? I mean, Augustus, and what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, uh, alas, I was unable to produce so Augustine and Calvin and Luther, but I, I did go to the Big Faces cell, and I spent the evening with the sort of equivalent of Al Capone, Legs Diamond, and Jesse, Jesse James, and... Of course, they said to me, among other things, you know, was it mean? And in particular, what does full redemption mean? And there I tried to get to what uh, the God of the New Testament means by full redemption, the gift of his mercy, his peace, and above all, his grace, as it's explained in the Gospels and the Epistles. Simple messages that Jesus died on the cross for us, for you, for me, to redeem us. And whatever we've done, however bad, the ruin we're going through, um, nobody is beneath the reach of God's grace. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we can, I think, perhaps position ourselves to be in a position to receive it. How do we do that? How do we position ourselves to receive the grace of redemption? Well, this question and my prison anecdotes bring me to the life of Charles Colson. I've just handed in... Um, nearly 200,000 words worth of a biography whose uh, title uh, by agreement with uh, Random House is Charles Colson, A Life Redeemed. Um, and it's a story which says a lot about the theme of redemption. <clears throat> now, I'm conscious of the fact that there may be some people in this audience who have only the haziest notions of who Charles Colson was or who he is today. So at the risk of boring some of you, let me very quickly summarize that. Uh, he was born in 1931 in Boston after going to Brown University and uh, the United States Marine Corps. He was the youngest captain in it. He became a successful lawyer starting his own firm. Materially, he was highly successful. Spiritually, he was absolutely nowhere, godless, in fact. He didn't go to church, he didn't read the Bible. And his first wife, when I interviewed her for the biography, told me she was amazed to find she'd um, was engaged to a man who didn't even know who the prodigal son and the good Samaritan were. Um, so that was the um, extent of his sort of spiritual depth at that time. He um, was obviously interested in politics. He was a Republican activist. He was chief of staff to Senator Leverett Saltonstall in Massachusetts. And he had something of a reputation in Massachusetts politics, um, which is quite a rough arena, I gather, uh, for hardball politics and dirty tricks. He was certainly energetic and original and ruthless, and perhaps because of those qualities, he came early to the attention of Richard Nixon. He uh, joined the Nixon White House at the age of 39 in 1969 as a special counsel of the President of the United States. And as Eric reminded us, he was very quickly known as Nixon's hatchet man. And he um, specialized um, in both good things like building uh, the coalition between blue-collar workers and Republicans, but also bad things like discrediting opponents by any means possible. I've got some good stories of the biography about his artist, artistry in that department. And he was also famous at one point to, for saying in a memo to his staff, they'd all got to work harder, and he was going to set an example, and he would walk over his grandmother for Richard Nixon. That had interesting consequences. Grandmother clubs were formed all over America. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, 
uh, LBJ down at the LBJ ranch uh, kept this cutting of, Nick's, of uh, Colson saying, walk over and said, uh, you know, that's how the taxpayer's dollar should be spent. I, if I'd still be present if I'd had a man like that on my staff. <laughs> anyway, uh, Colson became involved in Watergate, um, not perhaps as directly as some of the newspaper reports at the time said, but he still certainly helped to create the moral or rather immoral climate in which the excesses of Watergate could happen. For example, he recruited Howard Hunt. He found the money for the fielding break-in and one or two other bad things. And he continued godless. Uh, someone tried to um, interest him in the Christian faith at that time, and Colson said, no, thank you, and added, religion is all right so long as you have as little of it in your life as possible. So that was his sort of attitude at that time. Well, after the 1972 election, uh, Watergate imploded and Colson was implicated. And after Nixon, he really became the media's public enemy number one. And he had a fiery arrogance, which the media in particular hated, as many other people did as well, including the special prosecutors. And Colson was well and truly in the frame. He really was resigned from the White House. He was pushed out. They tried to make him the fall guy, or Haldeman Ehrlichman did. And then he had this extraordinary episode when he was rebuilding his career as a lawyer, trying to get legal business, and he went off to see the president of Raytheon, who was Tom Phillips, and Tom Phillips, in a word, um, managed to sort of convert him to Christianity in one meeting. Um, what happened was that Tom Phillips asked him some searching questions about his role in Watergate, and then read him uh, passages from C.S. Lewis's marvelous book, Mere Christianity, including a sentence which resonated very deeply uh, with Colson, which is the chapter is all about pride, and pride is the complete anti-God state of mind, said uh, Lewis. And Colson, though he was too proud to admit it at the time in front of Tom Phillips, he went out into the driveway, sat in his car, and wept bitter tears and decided he must change his life. He had what Christians call a conversion experience, of a Damascus-like road kind. And he started to pray, he started to read the Bible. He found Christian friends who came alongside him as, as prayer partners. And two or three things happened which are fairly familiar to people on spiritual journeys. Uh, one is he had what um, uh, sometimes called a long dark night of the soul, a period in which he really started to agonize uh, over his past. He was what people sometimes call he was convic <coughs> excuse me, convicted of sin. He started to become overwhelmed by his wrongdoing, which wasn't actually anything like as bad as what some other people uh, in Watergate had done, but certainly he was, his, his penitences went far deeper than anything to do with Watergate. And then he repented. He went through a period of great repentance. The word repentance is tremendously negative in the English language. Um, this is the Socrates Society. I'll take you back from the original Greek, where the word for it is metanoia, Meta, a change, noia of mind, sometimes a change of heart and mind, a whole life changing course. And one of the first, a lot of people, of course, were immediately cynical. There were cartoons of Colson dressed up as a monk outside the White House holding up a banner saying, repent. Um, and, uh, but um, there is a biblical test, uh, despite all the cynicism, whether or not someone's repentance is genuine. It comes in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, show the fruits of your repentance. And Colson's fruits showed up very strongly, although the special prosecutors had enormous difficulty pinning anything on him. He pleaded guilty to a charge hitherto unheard of before or since in the United States Penal Code. He pleaded guilty to, um, did a plea bargain, pleaded guilty to 
uh, taking action prejudicial to the rights of a criminal defendant, um, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and all he'd actually done was pass on a copy of a newspaper article about, or to a newspaper reporter. But you know, he pleaded guilty to it, and a tough judge sentenced him to um, uh, prison, uh, and Colson served uh, seven months. In that seven months, he went further into the processes of prayer and repentance, and he obviously felt a real call to serve God in prison ministry. And he came out and founded a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. Enormous cynicism by the bucketful was poured over Colson after he came out. It had to be a biographer to realize how bad it got for him. Um, and people used to get up at meetings and shout, Jesus, Colson, you're just ripping off Jesus Christ. Colson, you're a fraud, all kinds of things. But he um, uh, stuck with it. And um, he started Prison Fellowship. Unlike some evangelists, he, his sort of financial life was impeccable. He started it with his own money. He gave all his book royalties, all his speaking fees to Prison Fellowship. And he really walked his talk, and gradually the cynicism d- diminished. Um, what has happened over the last 28 years in Prison Fellowship is so remarkable that I, for one, don't believe it could have happened without the guiding hand of a redeeming God, because its uh, effect has been enormous. Um, I'm not here to uh, publicize or promote Prison Fellowship, but uh, for example, the kind of thing it does, there's an outfit called Angel Tree, which is part of Prison Fellowship, gives three quarters of a million Christmas presents every year to the children of prisoners, love from mum, love from dad, and I as an ex-prisoner know anything keep you in touch with your children during uh, prison, is, that's a wonderful thing. And those uh, children's families often come from the poorest um, families of the country. They are offered uh, Angel Tree camping holidays. They go on uh, Christian holiday camps, 20,000 of them do that. Then they have a program called Operation Starting Line. It uh, goes into prisons. I've been with Colson this year into three major prisons, uh, Parchman Prison, Mississippi, about the toughest jail in the whole country, uh, prison up in New Hampshire, and uh, at Easter I was with him at um, Mountain View Women's Prison. And when I've seen him in death row and uh, with the prisoners, that he is a wonderful uh, prison evangelist who really... Uh, speaks and changes lives and, and set his organization in large numbers. He also pioneers what are called international uh, freedom initiative, sorry, inner, inner freedom uh, initiative um, prisons and restorative justice. These are really remarkable, most interesting experiments in penal policy in the world are taking place in the uh, four or five IFI, Interchange Freedom Initiative prisons in this country. I've been to them, or three of them, and um, just only one thing needs to be said, that uh, the repeat offending rate of people coming out of these prisons is 8%. The repeat offending rate of an average American or British jail is the order of 70%. So they must be doing something right in the teaching they do. And um, Prison Fellowship, and it, now Prison Fellowship International, has 105 countries reaching out to prisoners, prisoners' families. This is a huge $55 million a year ministry. Colson himself takes a salary of I think it's $59,000 a year and puts all his speaking fees and book royalties back in so he certainly walks his talk um, and it's a teaching ministry a ministry of Christian unity wonderful what he's done bringing groups together um, uh, across denominations and above all he's set a wonderful personal example he's been faithful well is that redemption nobody except God knows for sure but it looks an odds on certainty of a bet that Colson has been redeemed. He's certainly been rehabilitated. He's uh, 
probably America's best-known Christian leader after Billy Graham. His books sell by the millions. He's a hero to many people in the community, and he's a wonderful role model for many, many people. Now, there is a cross-connection between rehabilitation and redemption. There is a cross-fertilization, which brings me back finally to the question I said I'd try and answer, was Richard Nixon redeemed? Did redemption come to him? Well, I suppose if Joe Public was asked to bet the ranch on whether or not Richard Nixon had been granted redemption, the wise money would probably bet against it. Um, he never expressed much in the way of an apology for things he did wrong at the time of Watergate, uh, never talked much about repentance, he never outwardly looked much of a religious man. I rather cherish the story of him going to the national prayer breakfast, which all presidents are made to do, and coming back and saying to his aides afterward, uh, rather than do that again, I'd prefer to go to the dentist without an anesthetic. So, <clears throat> um, but I think one has to be careful. As I said at the beginning, redemption is God's business, not man's business. And my biographer's bet is the other way to the wise money. Why? Well, uh, Richard Nixon had complicated relations with everyone in his life, including with God. Um, he um, certainly had a relationship uh, when he was young, he seriously considered being a Quaker minister, and he never lost that faith. I found an essay, huge long essay called What Do I Believe in his early papers, which ends up with saying uh, the ideal of Jesus Christ is the, where I would like to dedicate my life. Um, he may have failed in all kinds of aspects, um, but, and he certainly hated ever talking about religion. Um, I uh, often always fail when I try to get him onto that subject as a biographer. But I do happen to know that he, uh, in the later years of his life, said prayers, knelt down and said prayers every single night. And just before he died, he did tell me that he'd got something called peace at the center, which is a uh, Quaker virtue. That's what they talk about, having peace at the center. And for all kinds of pieces of evidence, I believe he did. But we just don't know. And I suppose my message of my talk has to end, as far as redemption is concerned, on, uh, I don't know, as a human being, um, in talking about anyone else's redemption. Ruin and rehabilitation are the things that are seen. Redemption is something that is unseen. But I think we can hope and pray for it uh, to a God who is faithful. Thank you for listening to me. That was wonderful. Thank you. We um, happily have uh, a good deal of time for some questions and uh, I believe there's a microphone. Is that just a mic stand or is there a microphone there? There's a microphone. Um, if anyone has questions that they would like to ask Jonathan Aiken, if they would want to uh, step up there, that's the way to do it. And uh, I will... Uh, please, um, as I always say, try to keep your questions uh, in the form of a question. <laughs> and uh, because we really have... Uh, quite limited time, actually. So uh, any, anyone else who wants to ask questions, please uh, line up behind Mr. Lipscomb. Okay, and uh, Jonathan, please. I called uh, Chuck Colson this afternoon on a news story that I'm working on that's Dick Cavett's fault. So it's kind of ironic to see you here this evening. Uh, however, if I missed buying uh, Nixon's book when it was on offer, I did buy Haldeman's. And I wonder if you're familiar with Haldeman's theory that Colson was really the one behind the break-in. Uh, I talked to Colson about it some time ago, and if you did, good. If you didn't, you should. That's not a question, but it's an opportunity. <laughs> um, 
I am very much aware of the, the theory, uh, and I regard it as rubbish, um, that uh, I absolutely know that um, uh, Colson had no prior knowledge of the break-in, nor did he plan it. I, I think if one was trying to prosecute Colson in, in the court of morals, um, you would uh, certainly say, well, he and Nixon brought out one another's dark sides, uh, Colson admits that in my biography, and that uh, Colson encouraged the, um, uh, the climate in which Watergate could possibly happen. Um, and certainly there were hard men and very weak men who felt sort of pressured by both Nixon Colson's demands for results and things like that. Um, and, uh, but Colson was not stupid, uh, and the Watergate burglary was one of the stupidest and dumbest acts of all time, and uh, the idea that there was any good intelligence to be dug out of the, by that burglary, and the idea that Colson would ever have um, uh, got anywhere near it in terms of just simple tactics was simply not true. But to follow up on that, was that as dumb as wanting to burn down the Brookings Institution to get uh, Gelb's files? Well, I will give you a, a revelation on, on, on that one. Uh, it, that is untrue, too. Um, Colson, I'm no apologist for Colson uh, and uh, his activities in the Nixon White House. I'm very critical of a good many of them. But the Brookings Institution story is, is an invention. Um, and I spoke to the guy who... Um, I think it's called Jack Caulfield, was the, the cop to whom it was supposed to have been uh, said. And this is an exchange allegedly took place um, in the men's room of the White House. And um, it's, uh, without going into huge detail here, uh, Colson neither was dumb enough uh, nor mad enough to ever suggest it, and Caulfield um, admitted that this simply wasn't true. Mr. Aiken, I, I do have a question, but first of all, I'd like to tell you briefly what a privilege it is to be able to have this opportunity to thank you for your biography of Richard Nixon. Um, the fact that I have defended Richard Nixon consistently since I was in the sixth grade and have always loved him <coughs> has always been my particular cross to bear. And twice, twice in my life, once when I was reading an essay by Paul Johnson that appeared in the November 1988 issue of Commentary called In Praise of Richard Nixon, and once when I was reading your book, I thought, this is the Nixon I know. Why don't other people see this? And I wanted to thank you for that. Also briefly, I'd like to be true to form and, and say a brief word in Mr. Nixon's defense about the prayer breakfast. Mr. Nixon was brought up a Quaker. I was brought up in Christian science. And if you are taught to pray silently and to keep your religious cards close to the vest, you never get over your embarrassment at being in crowds of evangelicals. And <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love you all, but... <laughs> My question, um, I wonder if, if the day will come and I will live to see it when Mr. Nixon gets credit for anything. It burns my blood when I hear people say, oh, Al Gore is the most successful vice president. We all know Richard Nixon was the best vice president ever. When they say Jimmy Carter is the best ex-president, baloney, Richard Nixon was the best president. We have to get to the question. Will he ever, will he ever get credit for anything? 
Well, thank you for the uh, generous compliments you've said about my book. Um, and uh, as for the um, uh, defense of Nixon, the prayer breakfast, I think your comment is, is a fair one. I used to belong to the church reticent wing of Anglicanism myself, and it took me <laughs> a, a, a long time in prison or anywhere else to be able to pray out loud, so I can understand anyone um, being reluctant, at least at first. Um, I, although I produced a biography which is friendly towards Richard Nixon, I um, don't consider myself in all aspects of his life and career as a tremendous defender, but I think there was one advantage of being a non-American biographer. It usually offends American audiences when I say that, but I think there are two subjects in which your average American audience is not capable of being objective. One is the Vietnam War and the other is Watergate. And steering a course of struggling to be objective through these uh, very treacherous waters, I think, um, is sometimes uh, better done by non-Americans. And there is a huge uh, um, bafflement still to this day as to quite how uh, Watergate um, managed to end up uh, the way it did. But rather than get into all that, I, I think I, the common ground I share with you is that I think um, history will be much kinder to Richard Nixon than uh, journalism has been. It's just too close. In many ways, um, uh, Watergate was the last battlefield of Vietnam and Nixon was its last casualty. And only when you get away in history, historical terms, and I, th I think it'll be uh, probably a century from now uh, before um, Nixon revisionism, uh, really gets underway. A lot of that revisionism will not be kind to Richard Nixon. He did a lot of bad things. No question about that. But if you look at him in, um, I think, a more objective life than journalism has been able to do, although there have been books like Tom Wickers, which are, you know, there, are, there are areas we mentioned Al Gore and Jimmy Carter. I mean, Nixon was a rather remarkably good president in terms of the environment and things like that. So I think the uh, Nixon revisionism will have its day, but history will always be tough on him, and rightly so, uh, for the moral mess of Watergate. I've seen some, uh, a number of statistics and, and read some articles about how it seems like the, uh, the Christian faith is, is uh, uh, receding, almost dying in Western Europe, and in particular in England, and I'm kind of curious, but your movement towards the Christian faith kind of went against the, uh, the trend in, uh, in England and in Western Europe, and I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that. Do you think there's any, uh, are there any signs of or any chances of a of kind of a revival uh, in Christianity taking place over there? The uh, health of the Christian church um, in Britain in comparison to the health of the Christian church in America is very poorly indeed. Um, the statistics are roughly this. Um, six or seven out of every ten Americans uh, say that, that they go to church fairly regularly. Um, uh, it's only it's less than one out of ten can say that in Britain. Um, after I came out of prison, uh, the first thing I did was uh, was to go to a, uh, a seminary, an Oxford Theological College called Wycliffe Hall, which is training up young ministers of the gospel. Um, they let in a few publicans and sinners like me, but on the whole, that's what they, they do. And it was a, almost sort of two of the best years of my life. Um, and I think 
I would not begin to lose hope uh, about the um, Christian faith. And it was really ever thus that the Christians have always been in a minority. Um, and at the moment, although the numbers are slender, there are um, huge areas of hope and, and indeed growth. Um, the um, evangelical wing tends to be growing fastest, but there are plenty of uh, good high churches and Catholic churches which are growing too. And, but these are islands rather than uh, the, the common norm. Um, but, for example, the London churches have all been growing by about 3% a year for the last three years. That's partly due to the black churches, and it's partly due to uh, evangelical Christianity as emphasized by the Alpha Course, which has been a great engine for growth in uh, Britain. Rural churches tend to be declining very, very fast. They're really uh, built for a different age in which every village went to church, and there's more and more amalgamations and mother churches growing up. People will now drive miles to a good church. Um, but although the health of uh, Christian church is poorly, uh, there are puzzling and interesting statistics around. For example, um, one out of every ten people who ask the question in Britain, uh, do you ever go to church, says yes. Nine out of every ten people in Britain when asked, do you ever pray, say yes. So there is um, obviously a spiritual hunger out there, and I could talk for uh, a long time about the spiritual hunger I discovered among all kinds of rather uh, unchristian and unspiritual young men in prison. So I think um, evangelizing the British is going to be a tough job, but is it getting done, and is it getting done well in certain places? The answer is yes, so no one should begin to lose hope. Did you discuss uh, with Nixon the identity of Deep Throat? My question is. Um, go ahead. I'll have a follow-up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, and he didn't believe uh, he existed as a, an individual. He believed he was a composite character um, and uh, probably invented as, uh, to give credence and cover to several uh, different sources. So that's what uh, he believed. There are all kinds of uh, theories... Um, floating around. I think the only one I believe is too libelous to, uh, to give in public as the guy is still alive uh, and very few people seem to have spotted who it might be. But um, I don't know. And I think that probably the composite uh, is the most likely character and that's what Nixon believed. Okay. And the follow-up would be, uh, did he um, bear any grudges towards people like Woodward and Bernstein or people in his own cabinet? And if he did or didn't, the extent to which would that be, in your opinion, uh, a good test of redemption? Very interesting question. Um, Nixon wrestled with demons about grudges. Uh, he could, uh, in the space of one conversation, be genuinely generous and gracious to old opponents. And I think, uh, like most of us, he mellowed with age and did become uh, more and more that way inclined. And uh, I believe... Uh, that is one reason why I happen to think that uh, the bet on Nixon's redemption would be a winner. But I would be wrong if I said the demon didn't pop up occasionally and he could suddenly uh, growl angrily about um, uh, someone who had um, uh, hit him and hurt him. Uh, so it was a mixture. And I think the struggle between good and evil runs through every human heart. Uh, Nixon... I absolutely know, was increasingly generous uh, towards old opponents, old adversaries, and critics. But 
the negative side could flare up occasionally. Okay. Thank you for your talk tonight. It was very helpful. Uh, I was a young, um, idealistic lad running around the White House in those days with bright eyes and expectation of good moral judgment. Um, Ehrlichman, Halderman, Reginald Krogh. Um, I could never figure out what, what was the catalyst to allow Watergate to happen. Was it a personal influence of a particular person? Was it just a void of moral judgment? I can never figure it out. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that. I think that the um, best shot I can give it in a very, very quick shorthand answer was that the pressures of the Vietnam War and particularly the pressures of the um, uh, Pentagon Papers disclosures, uh, the pressures of uh, great journalistic hostility towards him uh, made him both uh, wish to get mad and to get even. And he really um, suffered from taking things far too personally uh, as a president than he uh, should have done. People really got under his skin, and he was uh, determined always to fight back. His natural combative instincts were to fight back and to hit hard and be rough and tough. And when um, Watergate came along, I think his initial reaction was, um, Democrats have done things were just as bad. Let's suck it back to them. Let's cover it up. And uh, the old English nursery rhyme, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And he lurched off into amorality of the tongue, um, really out of an angry self-defense mechanism. Uh, you have to go back to the extraordinary pressures of those times to uh, begin to understand the strange psychology. If he'd been uh, born someone different with, sort of, say, an Eisenhower temperament, um, I mean, I remember Eisenhower saying at a press conference, come to think of it, there isn't much a reporter can do to a president, is there? And um, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of thought which never entered Nixon's head, that he wanted to hit back and hit back hard. And it was that combative instinct, um, bitter resentments, the enormous pressures of, of the war. Um, none of these are excuses. They are explanations, and it's the best I can come near to getting to it. Thank you. My name is Soher Sukari, and I'm a Muslim, but I believe that I'm Christian because I believe in Jesus and also a Jew because I believe in Moses. And I want to uh, ask you a question about redemption because I think redemption is not in God's hands. God has entrusted it in us as human beings through Jesus and makes us the people who would look at every person and forgive and love. And I think this was done when Jesus, during the, the uh, when he saved Maria Magdalena, and he asked everyone to look within. If he has no sin, he would throw the stone. This is where redemption begins. And I think rehabilitation, yes, but unless it is done with good, loving, Christian people around you who would give that person enough love and to exercise the redemption 
that Jesus has asked us to exercise, there would be no rehabilitation. And I, don't you think that this is a, the great thing in Christianity that would make each one of us exercise redemption freely? And if we don't, then we are the ones who are sinning. Well, there are deep mysteries here, and I don't claim to have a monopoly of wisdom. It's perhaps worth saying that um, St. Paul, somewhere in um, Corinthians, says that um, Jesus died on the cross for the world's redemption for all. He didn't just say for Christians it can go uh, deeper. But I do believe that uh, whatever route you pray for it or ask God for it, that um, redemption is and grace is a gift of God. And you mentioned Mary Magdalene. Uh, now, here she was, a prostitute-type woman, we are led to believe, in the Gospels, and she was one of several people who were changed dramatically uh, by the gift of God's grace. You can point to Zacchaeus, the corrupt businessman who uh, changed and gave all the money he'd swindled back fourfold to those he'd swindled from. You can point to Mary Magdalene, you can point to Saul of Tarsus, stoning Christians one moment, and... Um, becoming Paul the great apostle the next. All these people changed. And why did they change? They changed because of encounters with the living God and the gift of his grace. And there's a wonderful verse somewhere in Titus which said, uh, it's not, uh, we didn't deserve this. Uh, he, he saved us by the gift of his grace. Um, so that is what I believe. I think that at the very best... Uh, we can, rather like trying to clap hands with one hand, you can improve yourself, you can change yourself a bit, you can alter course a bit, but you have to have the gift of the other hand as well, the clasping hand of God's mercy, grace, uh, and peace. That's what I believe, and that's what I think the Gospels and the Epistles teach us. But um, you have uh, an opinion, and I respect it. Good evening, and I'd like to first salute you and thank you very much for the integrity you have. My question is, is not necessarily about rehabilitation and redemption. It's more about what you've had, the insights you've had working with Prison Fellowship, both in the United States and internationally. I'd like to know if you can offer us any insights into Islam and how much within prisons there is conversion towards Islam and how that compares with the work of the Prison Fellowship. Are there organizations that do similar work in in Islamic ways, and what kind of uh, ideological orientation do they have? And I'm sure you can take that and run with it. Islam is a militant religion on the march in prison as elsewhere. Uh, during my in-prison journey, I think four times uh, prisoners, uh, Muslim prisoners came to try and convert me. Uh, and um, I didn't think I was very obviously convertible material, uh, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, they came. Um, a few months ago, I was in uh, Manchester Prison, uh, New Hampshire, with uh, Chuck Colson on one of his Operation Starting Line days, and I remember we were both astonished by the number of prisoners who said they had been uh, converted. These, these were, as far as we can tell, white Anglo-Saxons, Protestants or Catholics, uh, and they had, I mean, New Hampshire is not a sort of obvious bed of uh, Islamic uh, fundamentals, but there had been tremendous work going on far more so than Christians trying to convert people to uh, Christianity. So 
The answer to the question, is it going on? Absolutely, it is. Um, is the number of Islamic converts rising? Yes, they are. All anecdotal evidence points to that. And in um, uh, Britain, with our often wishy-washy uh, attitudes, we are you know, now replacing Christian chaplains with uh, Islamic imams and so on in multi-faith. And, and um, I, I think the uh, reluctance of the Christian church to understand quite what is going on in prisons and elsewhere is, is a weakness. 